Support for WERU comes from Maine Boats, Homes, and Harbors magazine, covering Maine's boats, harbors, arts, and architecture since 1987. Bringing the coast as close as the mailbox, on the web at mainboats.com. It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online around the world at WERU.org. Wabanaki Windows with host Donna Loring is up next. Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Wabanaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today, we will be discussing the Christian doctrine of discovery. My co-host is Maria Gerard, director of the Penobscot Nation Cultural Center. Our special guest is Gail Corey Tunsing, who is a Indian Country Today reporter. She has conducted extensive interviews on this subject. She writes for Indian Country Today, a national weekly newspaper. She has written uh, for them since 2005, covering the Northeast Woodlands tribal nations and various indigenous issues. She is an award-winning reporter. Corey Townsing was born and grew up in Montreal, Quebec. Her paternal grandfather was from El Quds, which we know as Jerusalem, uh, Palestine. Her father and mother are both from Lebanon. She is a member of the National Arab American Journalist Association, as well as the Native American Journalist Association. She is particularly interested in social justice issues and the struggles of indigenous peoples around the world. She is an activist in solidarity with the people of Palestine in their resistance against Israel's military occupation and colonizing of her ancestral land and the struggle of her people to attain their national, civil, and human rights. I am honored and would like to thank you, Gail, for agreeing to be on the show. Thank you very much for inviting me. I know that uh, you have first-hand experience with the effects of the Christian doctrine of discovery, uh, and also that you've uh, interviewed a number of Native activists, uh, such as Steve Newcomb and Orrin Lyons, and uh, some, some non-Indians as well, uh, and uh, such as uh, Elizabeth uh, Koopman yeah. and uh, John Diefenbacher Crawl. Uh, yeah. Tell us uh, what you've learned and your thoughts on this on this topic. Well, you know, it's it's really a thing right now because I think um, this grassroots movement to um, educate people about the doctrine of discovery and ultimately to have the papal bulls, which are the foundation of the doctrine of discovery, um, rescinded by the Pope and other um, documents, charters by the English monarchies, also rescinded. Um, and there's, there seems to be a groundswell building um, about this. I, I think that I had heard about the doctrine of discovery, you know, in school, but I didn't know what it was, or I had forgotten what it was. And then in 2006, I was covering the United Nations Permanent Forum um, on Indigenous Issues in New York, and they have 
you know, they're there for two weeks every year, and they they do a lot of their negotiations and their, um, you know, they were negotiating the language of the declaration at that time, which was passed the next year. But they also have these side, what they call side events. And um, they can be on all kinds of really interesting subjects like sacred sites, you know, women's issues, domestic violence, and all kinds of things in the Indian country. And I went to an event called Papal Bulls Manifest Destiny in an American Empire. And it featured um, Chief Orrin Lyons, faith keeper of the Onondaga Nation, and Tonya Gania Frickner. She's also Onondaga, and she's the representative to the indigenous form, um, and some other people from South America. And Chief Lyons uh, gave the first presentation. He was the first speaker. And he was magical. He was one of these magical speakers who, you know, he started talking about one subject, and then he sort of seemingly wandered all over the place, and then he brought it right back to the point he was trying to make. And so he wove stories from the past to the present, and he started talking about spirituality. And he was juxtaposing the spirituality of indigenous people with organized religion. And he said that the two have different ideas. He said, and even today, um, we still don't connect because we're on a different spiritual level. They don't quite understand relationships. We never gave up our relations with the earth. And... He talked about a Buddhist spiritual leader who had supported the American Indians Long Walk in 1978. Um, And this Buddhist leader had told him that he had studied the issue of peace around the world and he'd studied peoples around the world and it was his conclusion that the most consistently persecuted people in the history of modern times is the American Indians. And this Buddhist leader said he was amazed and impressed that in spite of all the persistent persecution that American Indians have maintained their beliefs and their ways. And he said, even today, I see them as very crystallized and very strong, and I consider from all of this that the spiritual center of the world lies in your hands here in America. This was this Buddhist leader. Um, anyway, Chief Lyons talked about life on Turtle Island, B.C., before Columbus. And it was very beautiful, very lyrical kind of description of a pristine land of plenty where peace was prevalent. Of course, peace wasn't totally prevalent, but um, I guess the Haudenosaunee had arrived at their um, their understanding of peace and their great law of peace. Um, and then he said, then our brother came from across the water, and my grandmother said it was like a black cloud rolling towards us, a rolling black cloud coming at us, and it covered us. That's how she described it, Chief Lyons said. So then he brought it to the present, and he said that the previous September, that would be 2005, he had co-signed a letter urging Pope Benedict XVI to rescind and revoke the papal bulls. And he talked about the papal bulls. He said that these bulls provide the foundation for the theft of indigenous lands throughout the world that continues up to this day. He said the bulls subjugated innocent and unsuspecting Native peoples and subjected them to more than 500 years of slavery and genocide and a less-than-human identity. And he said we continue to suffer from what could be called an international conspiracy of nations that have now become nation-states to continue to perpetuate this racist doctrine, 
promulgated by the Roman Catholic Church. And he called it, he called the doctrine of discovery a crime against humanity. Well, I was fascinated by this, of course, and I wanted to write a story, so I went on the Internet and I looked up the papal bulls. And it's quite amazing when you read their language. It's some of the language says, um, let me see, I wanted to find um, one of the quotes from them. Okay, here's one of, there, there were about four or five papal bulls, and then there are some charters from English kings. This one papal bull from January 8, 1455, was by, um, it was an edict by Pope Nicholas, granting the right of conquest to Alfonso, king of Portugal, and um, to, and this is the language, to invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens and pagans whatsoever and other enemies of Christ wheresoever placed and the kingdoms, dukedoms, principalities, dominions, possessions, and all movable and immovable goods whatsoever held and possessed by them and to reduce their persons to perpetual slavery. And and this language just totally shocked me. Absolutely shocked me. And Saracens, um, Saracens was a term used by medieval European to mean Arabs and Muslims in general. And of course, since I'm a Saracen, I was extremely offended by this. And so, um, so what happened was, you know, this is part of, this is the age of discovery, the age of exploration, they called it when Portugal and Spain and then England and France and the Netherlands were were vying for, were first of all opening up trade routes to the Americas and Asia and Africa and vying for, um, vying for colonies and for markets and for resources. And so I've also come to see the, the doctrine of discovery and these papal bulls as the, the prototype trade agreement between the superpowers and and if you think of it in those terms, as well as the effect that it has on Native peoples here and everywhere else as well, um, and including on American Indian law, um, you see that it continues to this day in the way that America and other European powers um, continue to um, impose, I guess is the word, conditions on indigenous peoples both in America and throughout the world that are beneficial to America and devastating to the indigenous peoples and also to the environment. Right. Yeah, Gail, you mentioned uh, that the UN, uh, you went to the, the UN uh, forum yeah. and uh, they were talking about uh, issuing a declaration. Right. And uh, tell us a little bit about the declaration that they are working on or or later issued? Yes. Well, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples um, was final, was worked on for 20, 30 years by Indigenous peoples from North America, South America, all over the world, really. Um, and finally, the United Nations General Assembly adopted it in 2007, and it was adopted by, I can't remember exactly how many countries, but an overwhelming number of countries. I think 11 countries abstained. And the only four countries that voted against it were United States, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia. Coincidentally, countries that have large populations of indigenous peoples with land rights or claims to land rights. Um, Australia has since 
adopted it. Mm-hmm. Um, Canada, part of the story, I think, issued an apology. No, that was something different. He issued an apology for, for residential schools. But, but the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, I see it and the doctrine of discovery and climate change and, um, you know, environmental damage and trade agreements are all one package. And, and they all sort of evolved from these papal bulls and the doctrine of discovery and this, this uh, random racist, basically racist, um, um, chopping up of the world into spheres of influence. Whoever, whichever country found, um, whichever country found a country that was populated by non-Christians could claim it. Could claim the land, the people, the resources, everything. But not only claim it, but enslave them as well. Yes, enslave them or kill them. It's it's quite incredible, really, and shocking, shocking to our sensibilities. And yet, and yet, it's still it's still at work because in 1823, in a landmark um, United States Supreme Court case called Johnson v. McIntosh, the United the Supreme Court, um, it was a it, it, basically said that Indian nations did not, you know, basically named the doctrine of discovery as, um, and the right of conquest as a reason why Indians could not have title to land, could not hold title to land, that they only had the right of occupancy and not the right of title. And so also, this means that Congress's assumption of plenary power over Indian nations is based on on that, the right of conquest. And it's, um, it's very questionable, if not outright wrong. <laughs> so, I mean, I just, I don't think that um, concepts and principles that existed 500 years ago um, should be operating to impact people's lives now. Well, unfortunately, since that ruling, it's been ingrained in the uh, in the court system. Yes. Um, yes, and, and it's, in it's fact, it was named in uh, the 2005 Supreme Court uh, case uh, concerning an Oneida Indian Nation land claim. 2005 actually named the doctrine of discovery, um, which is an incredible thing. I mean, it's alive and well. So then... So then this movement started with uh, John Baker Kral. Um, as you said, Steve Newcomb did m- much of the research uh, on this issue since the early 1990s. And then um, John Baker Kral there in Maine uh, started this movement by getting his local Episcopal church to pass a resolution repudiating the doctrine of discovery. And that kind of spread um, to another Episcopal church in New York. And then last year... Uh, at the Episcopal Church's national gathering, the national church actually passed um, a resolution uh, disavowing the doctrine of discovery and the papal bulls and asking um, and also urging the United States to adopt the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And then after the Episcopal Church did that, then a Quaker uh, meeting did the same thing in September. And then just uh, this Last month, um, a Unitarian church in Florida 
did the same. So it's kind of spreading. And that's kind of pretty neat, I think. Well, you know, I, I guess the people have sort of said to me, you know, so what? What good is that going to do? You know, let's say that all of the uh, the churches repudiate the doctrine of discovery. What good is that? Well, you know, it's funny. I asked Steve Newcomb that same um, question, because, of course, the first thing that comes up is, what does that mean? Do we have to give all the land back? <laughs> you know? Which is, of course, is not going to happen. But I don't think, I don't think that we know exactly what the result was, but I would would be. But I think it's important, even only symbolically, that these papal bulls be, first of all, that people know about them. You know, so that's education. And second of all, that people admit that how bad they are and how wrong they were, um, especially in light of our so-called enlightened, you know, um, our so-called enlightened world now with, um, you know, all our our um, international laws against uh, genocide and torture and, you know, the human for human rights. I mean, there's there's so there's such an anachronism, um, but I don't know. I can't answer that, Donna. I don't know what the practical outcome would be. Well, it struck me that uh, I read your article, uh, the one you just posted in Indian Country Today, uh, on that uh, uni- Unitarian Universalist uh, reversal. Yeah. You know what they, uh, but then they said that uh, there was a wider uh, body that had to approve that. And then it's going to take like three years to study it. Yeah, they have a they have a process just like the Episcopal Church does. Um, they have a process. They have to submit these statements of conscience um, by October, and he and the fellow Dan Callahan just missed it last October, so he won't be able to actually submit it until this October, and then it'll have to sort of, um, you know. You battle with other statements of conscience to see if it will be adopted, and then and then it has to be reviewed, and then it has to be reviewed another at another national meeting, and then it can be adopted. So mm-hmm. it's a big long process. Yeah. So they have to kind of research all of the repercussions of uh, of uh, rescinding this uh, racist uh, criminal document. Well, I don't know. I don't know that they'll research the repercussions exactly because who who knows what the repercussions would be. I mean. I don't know how you would, how would you determine that? But I think just researching the doctrine of discovering the papal oh, the bulls. Do- oh, okay. So they're going to be researching the papal bulls. Yeah. Uh, as the, they were written, or as they were written, and um, also the char- there's a charter. I can't remember which Henry it was, but one of the English Henrys, seventh or eighth, not the eighth, probably the seventh, um, who gave John Cabot. The, the famous Cabot cheese, I assume. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> John Cabot and his sons to come to North America and do the same thing, right? Exactly based on the papal bulls, go out and grab all this land and all the people and all the stuff, you know, all the resources, and uh, for you and your sons forever. I'm going to ask Maria Gerard if she has any comments at this point. Yes, uh, like Gail, my interest uh, in the Doctrine of Discovery uh, came from Chief Oren Lines as well. Mm -hmm. So he's doing a great job at getting the message out. He was visiting in Maine 
in November. And he talked a little bit about his efforts um, with the disavowal of the Doctrine of Discovery and the work he was doing um, at the UN. And, you know, there's so much to keep to, to keep track of and to learn about uh, with these Indian issues that I really didn't know a whole heck of a lot about how, how that mattered today. But uh, I set about to do a little bit of research and, and wanted to learn more about the doctrine of discovery and um, quickly learned that it's not just a relic of America's past, but has a, you know, a major impact in federal Indian law today. And uh, it seems like the more that I've delved into the topic, uh, the more questions I have than answers. Uh, it's just a big, uh, deep, deep topic um, with a lot of work to do. And um, like, like you, Gail, I didn't, I maybe read a line or two in the history books about uh, the doctrine of discovery and didn't quite understand um, but, of course, all of us recognize um, the manifest destiny in, in United States history and uh, the Go West um, uh, quote from U.S. history. And um, I've, I've been reading a good book called Native America Discovered and Conquered by Robert Miller. I couldn't get my hands on uh, Stephen Newcomb's Pagan in the Promised Land. But this uh, book has a lot of information about um, the doctrine of discovery and um, Thomas Jefferson, Lewis, and Clark in Manifest Destiny, so I would highly recommend it. Yes, it's excellent. I know that book. It is excellent. Well, you know, there's a, the other thing I wanted to mention is there is a study group. Um, well, a couple of things, actually. Uh, last year at the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Peoples, um, they asked for a preliminary study or some kind of first review of the Doctrine of Discovery. So Steve Newcomb, Antonia Gagne, uh, Fickner, and maybe some others are preparing a document about the, document, the Doctrine of Discovery that will be presented at the um, Permanent Forum session this year. It's in April. That's one thing. The other thing is there's this study group centered around uh, Syracuse University in Onondaga that is working on the Doctrine of Discovery. And they, they just put up a really nice website. And it's called doctrineofdiscovery.org. And there you can find the papal bulls. You can find information about um, uh, the study group and related websites. And on the front page, Maria and, and everyone else there is, um, uh, is the headline on the front page, Doctrine of Discovery? What's that? <laughs> Which is, you know, the common uh, response because nobody, nobody knows and, uh, what it is. And um, you mentioned Manifest Destiny and the, the um, fellow Dan Callahan from Unitarian um, Church interesting about that. He said that he thought that the doctrine of discovery has been kind of submerged by manifest destiny, you know, that that everyone accepted manifest destiny because that's the American success story, right? Mm -hmm. All of our history that we learn in school is written, you know, they say history is written by the victors. Right. So we're not going to get history books that say, um, Manifest Destiny 
you know, was wrong. So we don't get we don't get that. Not yet. Not yet. Well, hopefully Maine will be leading the way in that since she, since um, Donna and Donald uh, Saltoma passed that law requiring um, education in the schools. Yeah, I mean the last uh, resolution that I. The, the last act I did as a legislature was uh, I put in the uh, uh, recognition of the indigenous rights right. that the UN had passed, and the, it, it uh, was approved by both bodies of the legislature. That's right, and I think that people should hold up the legislature to demand that it hold up its, um, you know, this adoption that it passed. So whenever the legislature refuses to um, you know, to give uh, land rights or whatever to the Wabanaki tribes, um, that should be brought to their attention. Excuse me. You adopted the United Nations Declaration of um, Rights, Indigenous Rights, and, you know, several of the paragraphs deal with land rights and, um, and such. Exactly. And, uh, and, you know, people have a hard time, I guess, to sort of equate what that uh, Doctrine of Discovery's effect is on uh, tribes today, uh, currently. And from, from my perspective, uh, you know, the, the, when, when they made that, uh, that uh, Johnson v. McIntosh, when Marshall made that ruling, and basically said that the tribes uh, uh, could not own land, but they could occupy it, and they couldn't sell it. Uh, and they had to go through, sell it or lease it, they had to go through Congress to do that. Uh, the effect of that, uh, particularly in the past, oh, I don't know, I'd say the past 60 years or so, and I'm, that number's just coming off the top of my head. For instance, with the, uh, the, the Penobscot Nation, is that uh, if, if you lived on, the, uh, on Indian Island, for instance, you could not get a loan to buy a house. You couldn't mortgage your house uh, because you didn't own the land. And, right. And the banks would not uh, lend money uh, without capital. Is that still true? Uh, well, it's, it's changing, and it's only changed within the past five years. Uh, but and it's pretty amazing that, you know, your home is the foundation of your, your wealth, basically, and to start, it's it's a sort of like a jumping-off point where you you've invested money in your home, and that allows you equity or whatever uh, to further your your uh, your progress. And you know the tool that was fully available to every citizen of this country was not available to Indian people. Right. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's, that's telling, and that goes all the way back to uh, Marshall's, Marshall's yeah. decision. And that's just, that's just the most recent that I, that I can think of. Yeah, well, that's, that's a really very practical outrage, I would think. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, you know, I mean, the whole, you, you know, there's like a trail of those things. I mean, that doctrine of discovery had... Uh, it influenced the Removal Act, uh, you know, where they took uh, tribes east, east of the Mississippi and moved them west, you know. Right. 
the Allotment Act. Yeah. It seemed like they, they used this every time they wanted to take land from Native people. And I guess just, you know, the uh, right now that since the tribes and, and cannot own their own lands, uh, the United States holds about 67 million acres of Indian land. Right. And I never figure out that. I, I never, before I sort of started researching the doctrine of discovery, I could never figure out why tribes don't own their own land. And I'm, I'm still not quite sure why that is. Well, not a, I mean, I think Seneca holds title. Yeah. But, but I'm sure that if that ruling didn't happen, that you could trace just about every piece of, of, of uh, real estate that was sold back to uh, Indian, Indian uh, ownership. So, you know, land being the, so, uh, the source of uh, resources and wealth, I think that's, that's the bottom line. Right. Of course, of course, the European invaders were able to do that also because Native indigenous peoples didn't have the same concept of ownership of land, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, they didn't have the same concept of uh, the philosophy. And, uh, you know, it's funny, I was just going through uh, Vine Deloria's book, uh, God is Red, hmm. and there's a little uh, statement, and, uh, and he talks about the power in it, and it's on page, page 89 of his book. I'm just going to read a little bit of it. It says, the manifestation of power is simply not limited to mobile life forms. For some tribes, and he's talking about the difference between their, their thoughts and, and, you know, tribal and European thought. For some tribes, the idea extends to plants, you know, that they have power, to plants, rocks, and natural features that Westerners consider inanimate. Walking Buffalo, a Stony Indian from Canada, explained the nature of the unity of creation and the possibility of communicating with any aspect of creation when he remarked, and I quote, did you know that trees talk? Well, they do. They talk to each other, and they'll talk to you if you listen. Trouble is, with white people, don't listen. They never learn to listen to the Indians, so I don't suppose they'll listen to other voices in nature. But I have learned a lot from trees, sometimes about the weather, sometimes about animals, sometimes about the Great Spirit. End of quote. So. Yeah. Well, Vine Deloria, of course, was the was who's the one who started all of this with the doctrine of discovery and that's where these newcomers uh, first heard of it and picked up the ball and you know did his couple of decades of research now yeah and, and it was vine deloria's uh belief that uh the doctrine of discovery had to be disclaimed Mm -hmm. uh, either by the, uh, the governments of the Christian nations of the world or by leaders of Christian churches. Oh, did he say that? Yes, he did. Wow. Um, well, yeah, of course it has to be that way because they're the ones who, who embraced it. Yeah, he actually he did an, an essay to church leadership in one of his books, um, Directly that it directly addressed them, and I, I found it on the internet, but I couldn't for some reason I couldn't download it. But uh, he at the end of this letter to the to the uh, 
uh, church leadership. He, he poses a question, and I, and I found it in an article. I don't know if you wrote the article. It's uh, Newcomb, What Would Fine Deloria Say? I think maybe Steve Newcomb wrote it. Yeah. I'm not sure. But in it, he, I quote him as saying, uh, Deloria ended his essay with some poignant questions. And the question, uh, a couple of them were, at what point can we as peoples of creation look to Christianity to demand from the political structures of the world our dignity as human beings? And the, the other, last question was, at what point can we become men and not mere appendages of the Christian doctrine of discovery? So those were, so he was very concerned with that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, as, as I said, um, I think it, it it goes beyond just dehumanizing and um, disenfranchising and dispossessing um, people historically, but it's happening now, not only here, but all over the world, and it's morphed into this corporate takeover you know, of sort of a corporate global takeover where um, governments and corporations are so entwined, intertwined, um, and are just, you know, the, the bottom line for corporations is always the bottom line. It's always about profit. And, I mean, a local, a, a nearby example I would point to is this effort to build 130 wind turbines in Nantucket Sound in the face of the Mashpee and Aquina Wampanoag tribes who, to whom that area is a sacred site and to whom the necessity, uh, you know, there's a ceremonial necessity to have an unobstructed view of the sunrise which I imagine is also true of the Wabanaki because they're related, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so the Interior Department is now um, weighing uh, these two imperatives, as uh, um, Interior Secretary Ken Salazar characterized them. And one is the imperative to develop um, renewable energy, and the other is the imperative to honor and respect sacred sites. And so it's going to be very interesting to see um, how that plays out. Mm -hmm. um, you're listening to WERU, Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Our topic today is the Christian Doctrine of Discovery, and we are talking to Gail Tunsing, uh, the uh, Indian Country Today uh, reporter. Go ahead, Gail. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, and not only here, but also in other places of the world, you know, in Africa, in Asia, in India, where, you know, 180,000 farmers are said to have committed suicide over having their lands um, confiscated for development. Yeah, and that is happening all over the world, and you don't really see that um, in the newspapers or, you know, or on TV or in the media. You just don't see it. And, you know, and even furthermore, what is the basis of our wars, of America's wars in Iraq, in Afghanistan? You know, we are 
looking for mark. We're still looking for markets and resources. Still an effort to capture markets and resources and basically control people. Although we don't say we're enslaving them, but it's economic slavery at this point. It's economic enslavement when you have uh, countries and corporations, you know, governments and corporations, and the um, the International Monetary Fund and the World Trade Organization. Um, dictating conditions for development, even and and all of this can be traced back to the doctrine of discovery and the attitude, which I jokingly, but it's not really funny. Uh, I call it the "it's ours because we say so" doctrine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, uh, but this attitude that the world and its people and its resources are there to be taken and used, and let what these people don't realize is used, they're taken and used up, that the earth is being used up uh, and has been drastically used up. And even in Haiti, the day after the earthquake, on the Heritage Foundation website, which is a neocon think tank, was a little blurb of comment about the earthquake with some statement that this is a great opportunity for investment. This is this is the first this is the first thought. It's not, you know, how do we save as many people as we can and, you know, help Haiti become, you know, a, a self determining nation. It, the first thought is how do we go in there and make money off of this disaster? Hmm. You know, that sort of reminds me when I was uh, in uh, Chile, there was uh, I was with uh, uh, legislators from all over the country. There was about uh, well, uh, seven of us were chosen to go, and we visited this uh, Mapuche village in the jungles, and uh, we went about two hours south of Santiago, Chile, and we were walking through the village, uh, the main village, to go out into the jungle, and we noticed this... Uh, caravan there were people walking carrying a coffin and uh, when we got to the village we were met by uh, two uh, machi which were medicine women and uh, we were told that the, the the possession we saw was that of a young man who had been shot uh, to death uh, because he was protesting the takeover of uh, of Mapuche land by paper companies, mm-hmm. and they ha- they covered that up. You know, we went to Tamuku to the city. We talked to the city council, and uh, there was not one word about that uh, incident in the council chambers. And uh, when uh, when we asked after the official meeting broke up, we asked about that, and uh, they basically. Uh, didn't really want to talk about it. So it's sort of like, uh, you know, they were talking to us about all of these programs that they were doing to uh, help the Mapuche tribes. And I, I did ask them, I said, do you have any uh, Mapuche members on these committees? And they looked at me like I was from out of space. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, that, and that was in, oh, 2002, I believe I, I said it was. But uh, you know, I mean, those those um, 
that paradigm is is worldwide. I mean, and it's it's. I don't know how you combat that except for uh, education. Well, yeah, it is worldwide. I mean, you think of the brothers and sisters in Bolivia. There's a battle there going on between the basically the empowered elite rich people who want to exploit the natural resources, the minerals of that land, versus the indigenous peoples. And thank God Isa Morales was reelected. You know, who want to protect the earth, protect their land. It's not all about... I mean, I could never understand this constant, um, you know, need for growth, you know, for, for financial, for economic growth. Don't we reach a point of equilibrium, or shouldn't that be a goal where it's not always about markets and resources, but where it's about balance, you know, that we are, you know, using what we need and restoring what we take? Hmm. Yeah, Maria, do you have a comment? Um, well, I'm, I'm still back in our discussion when we talked about the, the so what's of the doctrine of discovery. And, um, you know, I was just had scribbled down a note uh, that Gail said about the Buddhist monk who um, said that the spiritual center lies in the hands of America. Is that what, the, what he said in regards to, um, was it the longest walk and learning about the uh, issues of Native Americans? Yes, he said, um, he said uh, that no one has um, struggled, basically. Mm been persecuted as much as uh, the indigenous peoples here. And he said, I consider from all of this that the spiritual center of the world lies here in your hands. Hmm. Well, I, I think that there um, is approaching an era of truth and reconciliation. And um, it seems to be happening in small doses uh, here and there. And that this might be another component of the truth and reconciliation. I know... Um, you know, as a Native person, um, you hear all the time, you know, history's history, get over it, you lost your land, or any of those, uh, you know, those comments that we get. Um, there's so many stereotypes out there about uh, why we're in the circumstances that we're in. And I think it's really important for Americans to um, take a good, hard look and learn their history and how uh, their history has affected other people. And, you know, the first step in um, getting over something is being able to acknowledge it so that this might be a good first step in uh, a truth and reconciliation process. You know, that... Reminds me that I, I believe I read something um, in Indian Country today about uh, Obama writing an apology to the tribes. Or oh, Congress passed an apology. Congress and and Obama was going to also do something. Well, he signed it, but but nobody knew about it. Yeah. <laughs> so he signed it and just kind of filed it, huh? Mm -hmm. Yeah, my colleague Rob Caprizioso was excellent, our excellent um, staff reporter in Washington wrote that story. Um, and uh, and basically the question was, well, if somebody apologizes and nobody knows about it, is it really an apology? <laughs> exactly. It, it sounds like the... sounds like... I was telling Maria earlier, 
Um, I was watching the uh, the Olympic Games, the opening of the Olympic Games, and they had a, a beautiful uh, presentation by the uh, Aboriginals. Oh, uh, yeah, I saw that. Did What's you that see thing? that? There was 81-something tribes that were represented. Yeah. And uh, the next day in the paper, uh, Associated Press uh, talked about the opening and not one word about the Aboriginal uh, ceremony. You're kidding. No, I'm not kidding. What did they talk about? Oh, they talked about the death of the uh, Olympian athlete. Oh, well, yeah. And, uh, yeah, and uh, what else? Uh, they skirted around it. They just never talked about the, 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 uh, the Aboriginal ceremony. That was the a- actual centerpiece of the whole ceremony. I thought it was the best thing. It was. I mean, uh, you know, and, and uh, there were, and I, I, w- I watched the Today Show, I guess, the, the next morning, and they also never mentioned the ceremony. They, you could see the, the, the tribes in their regalia in the background, but nothing, nothing talked about there. About in that. plain sight, isn't that? Yeah, yeah. The invisible in plain sight. Invisible in plain sight. It's yeah. quite amazing. Yeah. So, and, you know, the other thing is I've, I've often wondered, what is so hard about admitting the history and, 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 and you know, uncovering and, and talking about what really happened. What are they afraid of? Uh, is it they're afraid that we might want all of our land back? You know, I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know. I, don't, I have no explanation for it other than that, fear of, fear of what, it, what, what it means. Um, and I think people don't care. They just don't care. I mean, I know it's a horrible thing to say, but I think a lot of people just, they don't know and they don't care. Well, I'd like to give kudos um, to the um, the churches who have taken the initiatives to uh, disavow the doctrine of discovery, the um, the Episcopal Church, the Quakers, and the Unitarian Church in Florida. And I hope that more people will think of ways that they can get um, their churches on board with um, the disavowal, not only the disavowal, but the um, affirmation of the United Nations Declaration of Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And um, I think that this is, you know, not a topic that we need to just, um, you know, beat to death. It's actually something that I I think we could uh, take some steps to work towards alleviating, and it would take a lot of people and uh, a lot of work, a lot of education, um, but I think that um, we may see more and more churches catching on, and hopefully so. Yeah, I think we should. Well, we have actually with uh, J.D. John Diefenbaker Crawl and uh, uh, the uh, Elizabeth uh, Coopers of the world. I mean, they're they've started a in Orn Lions and in the UN have started a grassroots uh, movement, and uh, and I think that's how uh, this is going to change philosophies and paradigms is from the bottom up. It really is remarkable that these individuals take this on. <clears throat> and and it's, it's quite a bit of work for them, you know, on, an, on their own personal individual level and time and 
and effort, and they're very, very dedicated and um, really to be to be applauded for what they do. Uh, it's great, really great. Um, I uh, I was just thinking that how how ingrained this is in the uh, in the judicial system with the uh, with the marshal. Uh, with the marshal uh, decisions, uh, and and how, if ever, we're ever going to be able to uh, to change, you know, the effect that it has on on uh, on federal Indian law. Well, I think we're going to have to change the makeup of the Supreme Court before that happens. Uh, That's going to be a long process, believe me. Yeah. Yeah. I like this quote in um, Miller's book, if I could just read it. Sure. The ultimate question. Yeah. The ultimate question, then, is whether this relic of colonialism and feudalism and racial, religious, and cultural domination should be relegated to the dustbin of history. Must Americans and American Indians tolerate the doctrine of discovery in our present and in our future? Is it unchangeable, immutable? Is there anything that can be done to erase a legal doctrine that has enshrined has been enshrined in American culture and law for 400 years. So um, I think Miller takes a um, sort of an in-between stance and just encourages um, people to be educated and to know how um, this doctrine of discovery has affected um, millions of people. Yeah, and and it's affected. Uh, Especially the, the the tribes in this country, um, ever since the uh, the Marshall ruling, all the way down through, and all the federal policies, every single one of them. Um, well, I I would agree with Chief Lyons and and saying that it is a crime against humanity, and um, we have that consciousness now. We of course didn't have it back then, um, or you know, Europeans didn't have it back then, but. Um, we have it now, and I think it's important to. Um, I agree that it with them that it's important to to have these documents actually to have the church actually rescind these documents to repudiate them and disavow them and say we don't you know we're sorry about this and um, we don't believe this is right and we're taking taking them away. Um, even as a symbolic gesture, but I think it's more than a symbolic gesture. I think it really needs to be done in law and in fact for people to start behaving differently. I think of think of the civil rights laws. You know, um, you really need the law to guide people's behavior, and I think this is sort of very similar to the civil rights laws that passed in the sixties. It is illegal to discriminate. Um, I think it would be terrific, uh, and that's something to keep working toward. You know, when you we talk about the the civil rights movement, um, in some of the readings that I've done, I I've, I've been reading uh, Vine Deloria's book, as I said, uh, God is Red, and he's talking about the uh, the Christian movement with uh, Martin Luther King um, and and how the the tribes uh, reacted to being um, 
invited to be a part of that particular movement and how they were uh, reluctant to do so. And, you know, he talked about uh, why they didn't just jump on the bandwagon and this, this civil rights the civil rights thing, and, and uh, he said basically that uh, the tribes really wanted to be looked at as as uh, governments and not as uh, another racial group to get uh, blended in. And they were afraid that by participating in such a movement that they would get uh, sort of homogenized. Uh, but it also, you know, the civil rights uh, movement did have an effect here in Maine. And uh, and the effect was, in, in, in talking to Wayne Newell, you know, Wayne Wayne Newell basically said, uh, you know, when I, he said, when I saw the impact that uh, the civil rights movement had, he said it gave me hope that something could change in Maine. And uh, when they found the, uh, the treaty and that started the, the land claims, uh, and that whole thing is, uh, uh, that's another, we could do another probably week's worth of uh, story on the, on the land claim settlement. But it, it's amazing how the doctrine of discovery and slavery, uh, how it affected uh, minorities, the, uh, the African Americans of this country, and how it's affected the, uh, all of the tribes. It's it's a huge impact, uh, not only in, in the United States but but worldwide. Yes, it's true. And that um, idea of a, a minority is interesting. I just did another story about uh, the Abenaki in Vermont, who've been trying to get state recognition, largely for um, the purposes of the Arts and Crafts, the Indian Arts and Crafts Act, because there are a lot of basket makers and artists who market their goods as authentic. Abenaki mm -hmm. artists. Well, they passed a law in 2006, and this that it was supposed to was supposed to be state recognition, but instead of granting state recognition to you know certain tribes and bands, they recognized the Abenaki people as an ethnic minority. Whoa! It's like no. We're not an ethnic minority. We're a people. You know, a people implies a nation. Um, so it's very interesting um, that language of um, of an uh, ethnic as opposed to a people. Yeah, I mean, it's almost uh, another attempt on on, uh, on on genocide to sort of like make the the tribes disappear. You know, into the into the whole. Um, it's interesting, again, I'm going to talk about, again, the uh, uh, Vine Deloria's <laughs> God is Red, and <laughs> it's just, there's another uh, another passage in this book, and it's, it's he quotes, uh, I don't know if I'll pronounce this right, Heinrich Hein, uh, in Religion and Philosophy, this was back in, he, Heinrich published in 1835, and what he said back then could be very, very uh, true even today, because they were comparing Christianity to uh, to uh, paganism, I guess, with the, the the Gothic gods. 
and um, he he says uh, Heinrich uh, in religion and philosophy in Germany that's the title of this book originally published in 1835 may have clearly foreseen the nature of the catastrophe that occurs when a religion grows thin on a land to which it has become a stranger and I quote Christianity and this is the fairest merit subdued to a certain extent the brutal warrior ardor of the Germans, but it could not entirely quench it. And when the cross, that restraining talisman, falls to pieces, then will break forth again the ferocity of the old combatants, the frantic berserker rage whereof the northern poets have said and sung so much. The talisman has become rotten, and the day will surely come when it will pitifully crumble to dust the old stone gods will arise and then from the forgotten ruins and wipe from their eyes the dust of centuries and Thor with his great hammer will arise again and he will shatter the Gothic cathedrals. <laughs> well, um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can I just say something? Very quickly. Very quickly. I just want to point out that, that the, um, the Christians in the Holy Land where Christianity began are not responsible for any of these things. They're not responsible for invasions or the Christian doctrine of discovery. And they're just a bunch of people who have been practicing in their religion in the holy sites of Christianity for 2,000 years. And um, I, I can't trash the whole religion, just what Europeans have made of it. Right. And, and uh, that's a good point, Gil. And uh, I, I thank everyone for joining us today. I'm your host, Donna Loring, and you've been listening to Wabanaki Windows. The music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his new CD, Dreamwalk. Dreamwalk. I want to thank my uh, co-host, Maria Gerard, and special ga guest, Gail Tunsing from Indian Country Today, and our engineer, Amy Brown. Please join us next month for another Wabanaki Windows. WERU would like listeners to know about community radio relief efforts in Haiti. AMARC, the World Federation of Community Radio Broadcasters, is collaborating with